Hey, Manon. How's it going? It's going good. Can you hear me okay? I can. You sound you sound loud and clear. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I'm good. Perfect. I, I think am good. I'm on uh, super super high speed. Um, nice internet. Yeah, thanks to uh, North Carolina State University's uh, pipe, as it's called. Nice. Well, we always like to thank people who have pipes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. It's like a yes. I mean, just in general, right? You yeah, yeah, definitely. You can't go definitely. wrong. Can't go wrong with the with the pipe. No, uh, definitely not. Even like uh, Sherlock Holmes or uh, other pipe pipe people, the pipe yeah. pipe fitters. Pipe um, fitters are cool. Yeah, actually, actually, we, no, seriously, we rely on pipe fitters <laughs> a lot around here. So we I got a lot of res- we got a lot of respect for them. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so so hey um. This is um, food safety talk, and and Don Schaffner, who's the the my, my normal co-host, is uh, uh, we've sent him to Brazil uh, on location for a while. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, or while well, he left, and he went to to Brazil for for a month, and uh, and Manan Sharma from uh, USDA ARS is gonna hang out with me for a while, which is cool. So. Well, thanks for the invite, Ben. I really appreciate it, and um, it's a pleasure and honor to be here. Oh and gosh, you're you're you're, t- you're overstepping it. it. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll dial it, I'll dial it back a little bit. Yeah. So, okay. you're ma- making me uncomfortable. Just say it's a cool diversion for an hour or something. It's a, it's a very cool diversion <laughs> for an hour. So, I I want to uh, tell everybody that um, Manon's already um, proven to be a, a diva slightly. <laughs> Uh, because he texted me <laughs> about five minutes ago and said, "I'd like you to, I, I'd like some personalized intro music of REM Driver 8. So, um, so I'm gonna see if I can do that. I've, I think once in the past, you know, we 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 use uh, um, uh, Neil Young's uh, "Rockin' in the Free World" as our. Okay. Or no, wait, it's not even. No, it's not I thought it was. I thought yeah. it was something different. Last it's not time, "Rockin' the Free World." It's um, uh, "Hey Hey My My," is the yeah. the tune. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, but I, I think we can do it. I, I put I put well, it would, it, in a way, it would be an homage to uh, to Don Schaffner as well, because oh, as as those of as those people are familiar with, um, you know, '80s progressive rock, REM is from the town of Athens, Georgia, which is where Don Schaffner got his master's degree, and I got you know a couple of degrees from from the University of Georgia. So in a way, it would be honoring. Honoring Don's absence, recognizing, you know, hey, we still remember you, even though you're not here. You're, you know, hanging out in Brazil for a month. Exactly. I think Don did his. Didn't he do his PhD there too? Yeah, I'm gonna get in trouble now. I don't know. I don't remember. Let's look it up. Let's look it up. I think he did. He did some degree there. Yeah, Uh, I know. At least one. No, both, both MS and PhD. Oh, see, what do I know? Look at this guy. He's a yeah. He's, he's yeah, going to so, love that we're talking about him. He'll listen to this and he'll put yeah, comments. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, and and Don always, you know, sends me the links for Food Safety Podcast when when uh, when my name gets mentioned. So <laughs> we'll figure we'll do it, do him the solid as well. Exactly. Um, so so we've got um, a couple of a couple of things we're going to do uh, today. Um, I wanted to uh, first kind of like do like a real real standard interview. I want to know more about you. Well, I want I know about you, but I want want the listeners to know about what makes Manon Sharma tick. Um, uh, <laughs> wow. That's a loaded question. It is. It is. Uh, it is. Um, but, uh, but then we got a couple of, uh, of things we're going to get into, like, like Yersinia and, and some, some exciting non, uh, wait, you're going to have to tell me what it is, but it's some, some E. coli that you're working on that, that might cause urinary infections or does cause urinary tract infections. Anyway, we'll yeah, get to maybe, that later on. Yeah. yeah, maybe we'll get into that. Yeah. Maybe they're. Uh, and yeah, it's not exactly what you think of when you think of um, food safety sometimes, but maybe there is a potential link there. So, uh, yeah. So, so, so you, um, you, you are, this is what I know about you and you're going to correct me if I get all this wrong. I know that you are a Florida fan. That um, is true. And I think, I think that's because you did your undergraduate degree at the University of Florida. Yeah, that's correct. Go, ga- go, 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 Gators! Even though we're not having the greatest of years right now, well, you—I mean—you really have a few years to uh, to revel in the Tebow love, right? Like you, you yeah, have to have some time down. Yeah, so. still the Tebow hangover, but yes, I do have a probably irrational, um, passionate interest in the University of Florida's athletic programs. It's probably, <laughs> you know, on some Saturdays it might border on. Um, uh, insane, I guess is the word I'm looking for. Excellent. So. Like, uh, I, I like how you phrase that as irrational. Yeah. yeah, it's completely irrational, right? Because I spent six years at Georgia and only four years at Florida, but I root harder for Florida than I do Georgia for some reason. Uh, it happens. It's, uh, yeah. uh, you know, I, I, so, you know, moving from Canada, we don't have no, you know, no one, uh, really pulls for the university of Guelph Griffins mm-hmm. in the, uh, um, national championship which is called the i don't know varsity cup no it's called something else um the gray cup no no that's the canadian football league yeah yeah well it's like the i used to go it's called the vanier cup the vanier it's it's french it's a french cup it's a a cup that you full full of poutine and yeah and and beer called modite um but uh, yeah, so so we don't, I don't you know coming here. It's it, it is always. I mean, I think you're the norm, right? Like the the school that you went to for your undergraduate degree becomes your like that's the one that's the one you identify with the most, right? Yeah, yep. Um, um, and so, but you were born. Uh, you were born in Alabama. Right? I grew up in I grew, grew up, up in, in Alabama. Alabama. Yeah, I saw a family who lived there, um, and uh, yeah, that was. Excuse me. It was good. It was. Um, Went to grew up in Huntsville, Alabama, the home of some of the, some call it the space city because we have a lot of NASA people and yeah. um, really actually when people say you know the rocket scientist line we actually did grow up with a lot of rocket scientists around nice um, yeah I went from Alabama to Florida and then Florida to the University of Georgia um, where I worked with some amazing professors and really sort of you know that was my, I was in the Department of Food Science there, but that was where I really learned to uh, appreciate the, the the field and uh, of food science for its complexity and for its 
uh, impact they can it can have on people's lives. So uh, that was, I think, where I sort of became, um, where my interest in science really was was serious at that point. So, Sweet. well, how uh, did you like? So, what what did you take at University of Florida? I was a microbiology major there. Um, did you go in knowing that? Like, did you? Oh God, no. What did um, you What did you show up to? The, what did you think you were going to do? Uh, well, I thought I was going to be a chemical engineer, and then I thought I was going to be a political science major, um, and then I thought I was going to be a radio DJ for a while. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but then, uh, you know. Uh, Micro. I, I wound up settling on microbiology. One of the reasons why was, um, and you would appreciate this because you work with um, you know, you work with a lot of students. Uh, one of the most formative experiences I had was actually a high school internship at a very small company at the time in Alabama called Research Genetics, um, which has since been bought out by a really big. Uh, um, a really big biotech firm called Invitrogen, which was then bought out by Life Technologies. But at the time, Research Genetics was really um, doing some novel work, making oligonucleotides. Um, and this is about right when the, like, the Human Genome Project was getting really, really big. Um, and I had a couple of just great mentors at that company um, that really got me into appreciating molecular biology and microbiology. So I sort of had that in my background um, when I, as I was leaving to go to college. Yeah. And then I realized that I probably wasn't going to be the best of engineers. Um, and so it just kind of came back to microbiology. A um, couple of detours along the way, but uh, it was always mole- you know, microbiology, a little bit of molecular biology. Um, but a, a shout out to Bob Zahorchak, who was probably the first you know, laboratory mentor I had, and um, Jim Hudson, who is the president and founder of Research Genetics, um, who's still a, a scientific business entrepreneur in Huntsville and doing a lot of really good things with the uh, Hudson Alpha Institute down there. That's cool. Have you, yeah. like, did you um, stay in contact with them at all? Like, have you, do you ever, like, I, um, do they know it, where you are now, like what you do? Yeah, um, I know, I know uh, Dr. Zahorchak knows I'm, I'm up here, um, it's it's it, it's a small town, Huntsville. So you know, my dad's a professor um, at Alabama A and M University. Go Bulldogs! Um, <laughs> and uh, so he and Dr. Zahorchak actually interact a lot. Um, you know, working with various students. So um, yeah, there's still some contact there. But I'm forever grateful that I got the chance to um, learn some science. And they were really patient because, as I think, the best way to learn science is to do it wrong. Um, so then you know how to do it right. Yeah. And um, they were really patient and let me learn. And um, uh, even though they were a company and they were focused on the bottom line, they were all very good, um, deep-thinking scientists. So they could sort of appreciate the scientific process. And uh, that's one of the things I come back to when we get um, younger people in the lab. I think it's, you know, it's important to, to do science well but I don't know that you can do science well if you don't have the opportunity to make some mistakes or not necessarily make mistakes, but do something one way and then think, well, how could I do that better? Or what would have been a better way to do that? Um, some people are really smart. Like a lot of the people that you and I know are really smart in the, in this field. They, they might not need 
need that opportunity. I I, I certainly did. Um, yeah, know, me too. I, I know I know exactly what you're talking about. You need, I mean, <clears throat> it, and you gotta be able to look at how others have approached it and then come up with this plan, right? Like, you know, some grandiose type type deal with with whatever problem that you're looking at and then do it and go, oh my gosh, I really shouldn't have done it that way or I should have done it somewhere. You know, like like you said, it's right. not it's not like a catastrophic mistake, like like you got everything wrong. But but in mm-hmm. you know what what we do, there's there's lots of different approaches to it. Now I've been um you know I think I shared this a similar um you know, similar experiences uh, as what you just kind of relayed. Like, you know, I just had a chance to make make mistakes and and have the um, the support around me to do that. Like, like someone who kind of said, "You're going to make mistakes. Go do that, and then we'll figure out what that mistake was and how to how to do it better." Um, right. That's and yeah. I, I think patience is such a good. It's such a uh, uncommon. Uh, virtue and a mentor, um, and I think the best mentors probably are the most most patient ones. And realize that science is a marathon. You know, ex- research is a marathon. It's um, sometimes it can feel like a series of sprints, but it, it really is a marathon. Mm-hmm. And um, and you may not run the whole thing on the same day. You run it in segments, but you really do um, sort of have to keep going or working towards you know uh, a larger goal. So, um, it's, yeah, I think, um, even in graduate school, um, when I got to Georgia, uh, even at Florida, when I was an undergrad working in labs there, you know, um, I had the opportunity to work with really good patient, uh, smart people. Um, and that was definitely to, uh, to, to my advantage. Yeah. It makes, it makes a big difference when you've got, um, mentors and advisors around you that are that are invested in that process you know they're not about sort of churning things out for the sake of it but but they're they're focused and i and i i you know i can't think of of many people that i know that that i associate with that are that are like that i think they're you know how you kind of described it on lots of patience lots of um being able to listen and and guide and direct is, is more the norm for the for the folks that, that I know yeah. in our field, but that's, that's what, that's kind of what you need. That's the, that's what makes you a better student. It's not like, you know, we, I, you know, as an advisor, I could, I, I kind of look at, you know, what my students are doing and be like, Oh, well, I, I mean, you know, clearly I could go do these things, but the goal is to train you how to do them. And, and, and then you, and then you might add some, um, something that I hadn't thought about, you know, because they're, they're all kind of, you know, creative and come out of a different way. And that's, um, I don't know. It's uh, that's the fun of it. That's what I like doing. I mean, that's that's exactly why I do what I do. Yeah, and uh, I can give you another good example. My major professor as a PhD was um, um, Larry Bouchard, who you know is a food microbiology legend, uh, and he is the best uh, teacher. And the reason he's such a good teacher is just what we talked about. He sort of says, "Here's what we need to do. Figure out a way to go do it. Come tell me what you're thinking about doing it." I'll add my suggestions, and then you go do it. Yeah. In the in the last part of my dissertation, he really let me take a lot of chances. It was you know stuff that he wasn't necessarily, um, you know, so it wasn't stuff that was in there that was 
germane sort of to the the research project that I was supposed to be working on. It was tangentially related to it, but he let me really gave me the time to let me explore and learn how to work with some stuff. And I really appreciated that 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 I, I relied on that that time in the lab a lot um, earlier in my career. Hopefully, I'll be able to go back and do some of that um, bacteriophage work again. Um, but that that was really important for me to develop as a scientist, and he he sort of, he gave me the the time um, to do that in the lab, and he also gave me obviously you know he, it's not just research in a vacuum. Research is always atta uh, attached to funding, and he he provided me a you know funding to 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 continue to do that. So those kinds of things, I think you know you can be a great teacher in front of a chalkboard and, and lecturer in class. And that's those are those are gifts that are awesome too, you know. And, and then you can also just be a, a good teacher by being a really good scientist. Yeah, and it, and it takes you know it's different skill sets, right? Like to to make that happen. Um, I uh, yeah. So what do you? Okay. So so you went to um, went to Florida, found yourself at. Georgia. I mean, did you know that you were going to go to, uh, once you're done with microbiology, we're going to go into food safety microbiology? Like, was that, or had you looked at other potential paths? I had looked at some of the molecular biology, um, graduate schools, more clinic, clinically related programs. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that I wouldn't say I didn't like, but I didn't know that I had, was going to be able to do, was to go through a whole six or seven year PhD process and then go through a multi-year postdoc. Um, right. And do all that. And I mean, I still wound up staying in graduate school a fair bit of time. Right. Right. But I think one of the things that always interested me about science was applying it. And there are people in the world who are excellent basic microbiology and molecular biology researchers and they have a true passion. We talked about, you know, research being a marathon. They have the endurance uh, to sort of investigate one single issue throughout their careers. I just didn't think that I uh, had that in my DNA. Um, a pun, absolutely intended. And uh, <laughs> so I, I, I really like the idea of being able to do applied microbiology and food science was a natural fit there. I think my dad being an agricultural scientist, he's a, a horticulturalist by training. I think I had a little bit of familiarity with, um, with the field of food science. I really wish I had taken more food science classes as, a, as an undergrad. Uh, I feel like food science undergrads get such good opportunities uh, for not just classroom training, but also practical training, like internships and things like that. I something I wish I had, had done earlier, but food safety, you know, is all about applied microbiology. And obviously, there's more to food safety than microbiology, but but that's the, uh, the, that's our corner of it, right? Right. That's that's definitely our corner of it, and that was really appealing to me. And the other thing that was appealing to me, quite honestly, to be just super frank about it, was that I felt like I could come out of school and get a job. Yeah. And I felt like I could come out of school even with a master's degree and get a job. And I wasn't sure, you know, when I started grad school, if I was going to stick through the whole PhD thing. Um, and so being able to have a career with a master's degree was something that was was readily um, attractive to me. Um, 
So I'm and, really glad. I'm glad I did a PhD. Um, I really like doing research. I still like doing research. So it worked out for me. But so that was, you know, one of the things. And I think one of the good things about being a, a PhD in a field like food science is that you have options when you graduate. Um, if you know you want a research career, you can certainly have the opportunity to go be a postdoctoral research associate somewhere um, and continue and get more specialized training. And I think that's really good. And I also think that if you realize that, well, you know, maybe I don't want to do such intense research or I want to do something else, I think, you know, a, a food science degree really offers you that opportunity too. So, yeah. And I, you know, I think, I mean, for those who, who listen and it might be looking for, for jobs, you know, students now, I think, it, you know, when, you know, looking back, 10 years when you're when you're making those decisions i think it still rings true now i think there are a lot of um graduates that are leaving um and coming with, with a ma- with a master's degree and, and finding career jobs now like you know it's it's still that that's it might be less than it was then but it's still mm-hmm. that's still definitely a um a possibility because it's not i mean this this whole process in the academic world is not for not for everybody i and i'm Don and I have talked about this a, a few times. I'd, I'd be lost elsewhere. Like I'm lost. I'm lost here, but I would be even more. Um, you know, I I just don't know how to function in a normal society type role. <laughs> I've known you a little while. I, th- I think you could handle it. I don't know. I don't know, man. I like I'm late for everything. I I'm not good with. Um, with authority you know there's lots there's lots of stuff that that i really like i might be able to get along with people but i I, i'd be frustrated i i mean i this well (laughs) yeah i could function but i might not be happy well this actually brings up a pretty good point because i think one of the really key things about being a good food safety professional or a food microbiologist is that you have to be adaptable and you have to have like a base of knowledge that gets you sort of in the door on a wide variety of topics, but then you have to be able to sort of adapt and, you know, and learn. Put a, yeah. 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 You know, t- 2006, I mean, everybody's leafy green outbreaks and I bring that up cause that's what we work on. But, right. Right. You know, all of a sudden you had people who had, you know, careers on other commodities with other pathogens and they're, diving head into working on leafy greens and, and E. coli and 57H7, you know? And I think that's one of the really cool things about being um, a food scientist um, and being a food safety professional is that you sort of have the opportunity to work on different things. Um, uh, and you have to have this sort of base of knowledge and be able to apply it in certain ways. But it keeps it interesting. And, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, I think that was that's been something that I've really appreciated about the field. Um, when I was first hired here at the USDA after I graduated from the University of Georgia, I was hired to blow up meat. Um, I don't know. Have I ever told you? <laughs> no, I, I didn't know. T- yeah. So the project that I was hired on was something called hydrodynamic pressure processing. And so you're everybody's probably familiar with hydrostatic pressure processing, yeah. right? You know, so. Um, we'll, we'll link to it in show notes. Okay. So hydrodynamic pressure processing is basically 
where you create an explosion in a vessel of water that creates like a really, really energetic wave in the water. And when this wave comes into contact with, uh, say, you know, a, a cut of meat, it tenderizes the meat. So it's a really good way to take the idea being at the time, it was a really good way to take sort of cuts of meat that were not considered, you know, choice and, you know, improve their quality. And so the group here was working on meat tenderness. And then somebody got the idea and said, well, you know, this, uh, you know, you're creating this wave water. What happens? Can this technique be used to uh, improve the microbial quality? Can you kill ca- pathogens on meat basically by doing this? And so when I was hired, um, that's what I was actually hired to investigate. Um, and the way you do this is you take an explosive, you put it in a vessel of water. And by vessel of water, that is a euphemism for a, pl- <laughs> a, a plastic trash can that you can buy at Walmart. Awesome. What Now, what what is explosive a euphemism for? Is it... <laughs> <laughs> Things that are really loud and make things break into small pieces. What, um, like, what kind of explosive are you? Like, are you using just your standard drive across the state line to South Carolina uh, by fireworks? Kind uh, of? <laughs> no, this, these are actual. I I wasn't licensed by the ATF, so the people who were in control. No, this is yeah. You had to have a license by the ATF, uh, by the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms uh, Bureau. To be, you know, in possession of these explosives. Amazing. Um, yeah, I guess you, you know, have to have a license or a certificate. We had a safe. We still have the safe. It's a, it's a some some kind of stone safe that is like earthquake proof, which is where these explosives were kept. Wow. And uh, you, yeah, you used to have to like mold it. You know, it comes in. You know, they don't ship it together. You have to put it together so you have to take the liquid and the solid part and then you mold it into a charge and you put the charge into this vessel of water um and what happens is at the bottom of the uh, the trash can that's where your that's where your meat is and your meat's in like this plastic bag that's been vacuum packaged and you know it's impermeable to the water so which is good and so you, you drop this charge down just below the surface of the water, and then you detonate it. And when you detonate it, what happens is, um, you know, Walmart trash cans are made pretty well, but they aren't made to withstand the, you know, the explosive strength of this detonation. <laughs> so, awesome. so the trash can goes into about six million pieces. The water it sort of creates like a a geyser effect so the water goes shooting up out of the trash can it's like mythbusters yeah this is actually on mythbusters really i'm pretty sure they sent a bunch of stuff we'll we'll have to look it up we have to look that up yeah um so what happens is the water goes up but meanwhile there you're creating this huge sort of pressure wave even it's a temporary wave that's going down and hitting your your piece of meat so they'd already shown that it tenderizes the meat, but nobody had really shown what happens if you could use it, say, to de- decontaminate or reduce the populations of E. coli or salmonella or listeria on the meat. Huh. And there were some initial experiments done that said, well, this could potentially work. And uh, they built uh, you know, a more complicated facility, a much more um, advanced facility, which is still here, um, that involved, like, you know, Instead of using a plastic trash can, you had like a steel, steel case in it and things like that, and you still fill it up with water. Um, 
and uh, so to try and obviously you don't want to do the work with pathogens in the in the Walmart trash can, right? right. Um, so you want to do that inside and have it contained and have proper disposal and you know all, all the safeguards that we take when we work with pathogens. Um, so yeah, they built this facility. They tried it out a couple of times, and it didn't really work out that well as the initial results. So, um, so when I started here, I was working on that project. Um, the results really weren't all that um, appealing from a microbial standpoint. And I think just this was, you know, a few years after 9-11, mm. the idea of having people handle explosives. In, in food facilities. In food facilities and things like that is probably... You know, I think, and rightfully so, they probably need to be more stringent about that. So I think a combination of factors sort of led to the discontinuation of of the research. Um, hmm. And so I started out doing that and then somehow wound up being redirected to be, you know, in, into produce safety. And so that's how we, that's how that's we sort of arrived. Yeah. And um, we did you know, some interesting experiments with the, what we call the HDP, hydrodynamic pressure processing. And, um, I mean, there's still people working on it, you know, because it is a, you know, it is a way to improve meat quality, but they're not necessarily using the explosives to uh, generate the waves. <laughs> there's, there's, a, there's a couple of different other ways to do it, which are more safe and I think more practical. And, and less, less need for an ATF license. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Which, which but, may be a barrier. But if anybody wants a really, really nice safe, <laughs> you've got one. Uh, we've got one. There's um, there's one available to uh, to hold yeah. your explosives in. Right. Exactly. Oh. So, um, um, yeah. So, yeah. You can come by. I don't, you've never been to visit here. I haven't. Hospital. No, I gotta come visit. I, but I, next time you're in DC, I'll show you the I'll show you the building where they used to um, do the the trash can experiments. And so the first time they did the experiment, the building actually had a roof and windows. But the, by the second time they did the experiment, neither the roof nor the windows existed. <laughs> but, okay. Did those, they no longer exist because of the first set of experiments? Or That is, cor- uh, that is correct. Phenomenal. I love it. So, oh, yeah. That, that's cool. Um, I, like, uh, I, like, I like how things uh, work out like that. Um, yeah, yeah. But see, here's the thing: is you have to be versatile, right? Like you have to be able to adapt. You have to be able to go from working as a meat microbiologist to, you know, working on produce. Right, and then yeah, I was uh, you know I was all I was going to say was, um, you know what I what I take away from my graduate school training and, and I you know still what I'm doing daily is, um, how do I identify problems and how do I then learn ways to to either address them or test you know test them right like like it's all in this realm of of food safety food microbiology so there's like you said there's some basic foundation that we all have we know you know certain things but when it comes to the the specifics it's about being able to use this i don't know um you know standardized set of steps to uh to then move it to the next to the next level but then be able to learn about it like so so maybe i could go work for for industry and figure out what that that challenge was but it would be a different kind of lifestyle um choice but but technically you know from a from my experience in in graduate school i probably have the tools to learn how to adapt um sure. to it yeah 
And I think we've seen, I think we've seen that in all the, in, you know, I, th- I think because food's con, it's not that necessarily food's constantly changing, but there's always issues that we're dealing with. And, you know, uh, yeah, I think, you know, it's a, it's, I think it's an overused analogy, you know, the idea of your toolbox yeah, and whether you have this skill in your toolbox or that skill in your toolbox. Um, sometimes I, 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 you know, I, th- I think it's definitely a, an overused is a metaphor, but in some cases it's true. And it, you know, they say when you go to law school, um, you learn about the law, but you don't learn how to be a lawyer. Mm. And I think grad grad school may be s- similar, you know. Uh, yeah, you, 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 you learn, learn about the, the science, but you don't learn right. how to be a scientist. I think, I th- and, and I think grad school is a little different because you do begin the process of learning to be a scientist, you know. Usually by people, by the time people are, you know, concluding their graduate school experience, I think most people can work, you know, pretty independently. And, um, and I think that's really the first stage, you know, you, it's, it's a lot of different things, right? You have to be able to do the research, you, and it's, I think it's similar. You basically have to, like you said, identify the problem, figure out a way to address the problem, and, and then figure out a way to describe the problem and what you did to address it. And I mean, and that would be like writing a manuscript, right? right. Yeah. And sharing and, that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, that's so often an overlooked part of, of the whole process. Um, because I, I know you've had students and I was probably like this too. You think, okay, I just did the experiments. I'm going to write this thing up in two weeks and it'll be done. Yeah. It's going to be, be there. done. It's going to be out there. It's going to be perfect when it comes. The first draft off my laptop is going to be perfect, you know? And, uh, I think I had really good, again, when I go back to, um, having really good mentors that show you the importance of communicating effectively, um, you know, Dr. Bashaw is the best writer um, I've ever seen. Um, he's good. He's, he's, he's really he, good. Yeah. He's really good. He's an amazing editor. Um, there are stories, you know, where he edits everything on paper, and, you know, there's stories that come back, uh, you know, every line's crossed out, and he's rewritten <laughs> stuff. But it's, it, it's better, you know, and you learn through that process. And he's um, he's he was you know, an exacting but compassionate mentor that way. Well, it's, yeah, that's good. That's what, yeah. you, that's what you want, right? Like, I mean, mm-hmm. we're, we're not in the, we're not doing what we're doing probably without those, those experiences with the, with our mentors. No, certainly not. And, you know, Dr. Jenny Chen was my master's advisor, another graduate of, um, of Guelph. And, um, that's right. so, yeah, so and she was very much the same way, um, different styles, but sort of the same concepts. Yeah. Um, Hey, so you said, um, I just want to go back to something you said earlier um, about that adapting and moving towards leafy greens. And, and you guys are doing a lot of work in, in leafy greens. You and I organized a symposium at IAFP way back in the day, back when I don't know if you were still a student or I mean, I definitely was a student. But you remember we put together this um, hundred years of food right. safety thing. Mm-hmm. I think that was like, oh, I think that was 2007. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it was 2007. It was, it was in Orlando. It was. It was. And we yep, had yep. Uh, uh, James J. Uh-huh. We had uh, Rob Tokes. We had we had others. Katie, Sw- Katie Swanson. <laughs> Katie Swanson. That's right. Um, I'm sure we could uh, look it up. Elsa Morano. Elsa, that's right. Yeah. And I. Um, so okay. So when you when you were talking about leafy greens, I remember, and I don't know if I. 
if I heard it correctly, or if I'm going to, I'm going to paraphrase something that I think Rob Tokes said, uh, Tokes was talking about the 2006 leafy greens outbreak. And, and I asked him a question or someone asked a question, but I think it was me, um, about how many, like out of, out of the outbreaks that came to, to CDC and that people were identifying through PulseNet. So, and I, I have this like vision of some, you know, analyst who's sitting, looking at pages of data and circling like a lie detector test when, when things go off the charts, like, oh yeah, there's an outbreak, there's an outbreak, these blips, right. That are above the baseline. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, PulseNet was the, the system that I, that helped identify that outbreak. Um, and, and I, you know, I asked them about how many of those outbreaks get the full treatment. You know that CDC is going to send somebody out there that they're going to they're going to start chasing it. And I I think he said, and of course, um, this is what I remember. He said like one in ten. You know, around that same time, we probably had nine other outbreaks that either we didn't identify or we don't we didn't have the resources to go after them. And and it makes me think back to. You know that that outbreak is kind of seminal, right? Like, I mean, there's oh, yeah. it, we're not having probably CPS doesn't exist without it. Um, yeah. The leafy green marketing agreement certainly doesn't, um, and which you know it's, which is becoming a model for um, you know uh, 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 standard setting. Sure, and, and, um, we definitely aren't seeing all of the um, you know STEX and leafy green research that's going on all the money that that's been poured into that and it just like it's like the butterfly effect right like just because they picked that one now of course i'm I'm sure it's way more complex than that but on the simple side of well there are all these other outbreaks going on that maybe weren't identified but this one was either solvable or the there was a lot of focus on it and now it's not a it wasn't a massive outbreak i mean numbers wise i mean it was 200 illnesses and four deaths Mm-hmm. But it mattered a whole lot, like in our world, right? Like it's, it's, it's crazy to me that that it it may have been just as simple as well. That's the one we picked to look at, and those other nine might have been, other, you know, um, you know, maybe uh, salmonella and peanut butter, uh, which or, which popped up later. But you know, whatever. Like we just don't know. We don't know the. We, there's so many things that are going on so often that. Um, that we're at the mercy of who's got resources to investigate them. And once we know about them, that's when this, okay, well, now we have a problem that we can all investigate from a science side of things. But but it takes, like, I have so much, um, I, I place so much value and I have so much respect in, in, for that world of epidemiology, especially those frontline folks that are, that are identifying and trying to solve this stuff. It's just, I mean, it blows me away that that's what we're built on. That's what we, we do is built on all that. Sure. Uh, that's a really good, good point you bring up. Couldn't agree more. I think the 2006, the impact of the 2006 outbreaks certainly shaped, you know, produce safety going forward now i mean it, you listed off a whole bunch of things that you thought it influenced to agree with all of that i'd probably also add that the 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 produce safety rules that are you know um specifically written as part of the food safety modernization act you know yeah. are obviously you know influenced by by those events as well so i think 
you know, the economic, you, you mentioned that there's 200 people sick and four deaths. And, you know, I guess uh, I'm a food microbiologist. I, I don't, I just don't fundamentally don't think that people should be able to become sick from eating food. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So I think the other thing that, um, you know, there was a second, you know, lettuce outbreak, a shredded lettuce outbreak, right on the heels of the of the spinach outbreak in right. 2006. And so the taco, Talk, uh, yeah. you know. Um, restaurant so, A, Taco Bell. Restaurant A, sorry. Yeah, sorry, yeah. I can say yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Right. there was restaurant B too, right? There was, that one as yeah. well, Right? So, I mean, I think those two on top of each other really were – because sometimes I think you get – you see momentum going a certain direction if you have one outbreak. This in this case, you know the the momentum was built upon, and I think when you had the FDA coming out and making the statements that it did in response to the spinach outbreak, where you're asking people, you know, I I think that certainly influenced the uh, you know certainly influenced the 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 I guess formulation of the LGMA and the industry's response to that. You know, the, I think the economic impact of the, of those combined outbreaks was over a billion dollars, right? Yeah, exactly. It's um, and, and uh, I mean, it was up until last year, maybe, when this, um, raw spinach sales returned to what they were at before, right? Like the the long term impact, and or you know, may, and I may even have that incorrect. I know that there was up until a few years ago. You know, there was this drop of sales. 30, you know, 30% or something that, that never yeah. re, you know, recovered. But I, you know, I remember seeing something that was like, okay. And it, and, and now, um, you know, seven years, six years later is where we're back, where we were, uh, as, as a market, which has, uh, you know, obviously massive impacts on the communities where they're grown and where they're processed. It's, sure. you know, it's a whole, yeah, there's this whole effect. I think also, you know, that outright being localized to one, not even one state, but one region of California. Yeah. I think, you know, you, you had a whole, you know, you had a concentrated math, a concentrated, I guess, population that was deeply affected um, by the outbreak. So I think all the, you know, a combination of all those things has led to, you know, some sort of fundamental changes in this area. And, and, and it's still not done, you know, we're involved in, research now <clears throat> trying you know working in collaboration with the FDA on verifying some some of the things that are stated in what we call the produce rule you know which is the proposed uh produce rule that was recently i guess what's the right term reissued i guess yeah i think re- the supplemental the supplemental right um and those guys have worked really really hard on it um and these are really complex issues uh in so, you know, we're involved in that, you know, there's a, there is a, you know, another multi-institution collaborative research project led by the University of Maryland, um, uh, you know, an SCRI project that a lot of people have done some really, really great work on, um, and, you know, we're involved in, you know, a small part of that as well, just to, to verify some of the field, field issues going on. It's amazingly interesting work. Uh, I hope it has an impact. Uh, the issues you deal with, I can't even imagine that I'd be dealing with what we're dealing with now eight years ago. Right. In the, in the fall of uh, 2006. Um, you know, and it's really, 
interesting. I was trained as a food microbiologist. I'm becoming more of an environmental microbiologist. It's, it, you know, it's, it's all manure all the time uh, in our lab because that's, <laughs> that's what we look at now. We look at the persistence of pathogens in, in, in manure and different what we call biological soil amendments. And that's what we spend most of our time doing these days. So I never thought I would be doing that, you know, uh, a few years ago. But but here we are. Well, and it brings, I mean, you know, two two things that we're that we're talking about bring up something interesting for for me in the whole byplay of of how these outbreaks and the fallout gets played out. And I mean, you're we, we look at the. The spinach outbreak and uh, or the 0157 outbreak in spinach. We look at the leafy green stuff. We look at fresh produce in general, and then I'll, I'll switch over to, um, to to peanuts as as another sort of analogous situation where things get worse in an outbreak situation in the process, but but the inputs coming into that processing facility when contaminated aren't going to get decontaminated. Right, like so. So there's there's this sense in the with the farming community as I've interacted with them over the last fifteen years that you know the the whole everything gets pushed back onto them, and and they're the ones who have to have to deal with you know with the changes in you know in the produce rule and and in the laws. But but the I guess the the flip side of that is yeah, but. But that's where the contamination's coming from, in, in, in or that's where a lot of the contamination's coming from. There's, um, you know, we were we were talking about spinach and, and the fallout on sales yesterday. We just picked up a story um, from New Mexico because there is the um, Sunland. I think that's what it's called. There was a um, an outbreak. Uh, the Trader Joe's peanut butter a couple of years ago was, or last year was from uh, peanuts that were grown in New Mexico and then the plant where there were processes in New Mexico and that plant ended up going out of business. And then, so what, you know, what we just picked up was, um, uh, it was 6 million pounds less, uh, peanuts are going to be grown in that region this year. That was what's expected, uh, which was a 30% drop in production from the year before because there's nowhere to sell them. Um, to, 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 yeah, it's, it's, so it's, I mean, we're, we're all, the, the industry is also interconnected and so dependent on, on each other. Um, and, you know, the processor goes out of business, although, you know, they could have controlled something, but it, it's got to come in from somewhere. So I don't know. I'm not I'm rambling a little bit here, but it's the I, I think the, the farmers that the, are the dogmatic response is, well, it's being pushed back onto us. And yeah. and it is, it, <laughs> and that's why we're looking at manure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and and that's why I think some of the research out there is is really good. It's taken a while to get down to that level, but if you're talking about how farmers apply manure, when they apply it, what crops are they going to grow in these manure amended soils? If we do if we do the research right. You know, we can really help answer those questions. They know what they're doing now. I mean, it's not a question of whether or not they can grow enough food. Right. You know, the U.S. has never, since industrial agriculture has been in place, I guess, the U.S. has never had a problem growing food. Um, But these are the kind of things I think farmers worry about. Uh, I think where 
closer to answering those questions um, than we. I hope I hope that we're closer. I hope we can provide some some solid guidance here. It it's not monolithic, you know. It's always interesting when people say the produce industry or the leafy greens industry, right? Because how you grow leafy greens in California is not the same way that you grow them in Maryland, you know. And <clears throat> so I think all of these potential solutions. All of the, all of these sort of, all of these sort of applied research projects have to be so regional, uh, regionally specific, so practice specific, to really assess, you know, the risk, and and figure out what's going on. So, it's a lot of specialized research. It's it's really interesting to be involved with. I'm I'm, I'm glad I'm involved in it. It's a long way from food microbiology. Uh, some some days. Right. Um, I mean, just as more, yeah, but it is, but, 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 I mean, it, but yeah, eventually yeah. it is. Yeah. Eventually yeah. it is, you know, but again, you got to go back to your, you know, your really overused tired toolbox and, <laughs> and, and pull out the stuff that's going to help you. And you have to bring it, hopefully, hopefully we can bring this all back together. You know, it's all so many different parts right now and they're mm-hmm. all important parts. Uh, hopefully we can bring like, you know, the usage of manure and how we grow things and survival of things on foliar surfaces and the irrigation water, the water questions. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, hopefully we can bring this all together into something useful that helps, like you said, that helps a farmer, it, you know, otherwise, you know, they're going to keep being put upon by different, uh, you know, I feel like they're just going to keep being put upon by the people they're supplying to, um, you know, with different audits and different standards and things like that. Maybe that's one way the LGMA and hopefully the, uh, you know, the produce role of FISMA, you know, will, will help out with that. Maybe it'll streamline some of those things. I, you know, I'm not an expert on, on that, so I'm not, I'm not sure, but I, that's my hope. Well, and, you know, I think we're only ever going to be able to answer with, with some of these larger research foci we're going to be able to answer some of the the generic questions to start circling in on the target and i'm i've just used like nine different cliches and that's <laughs> let, let me let me restate this we're going to answer some questions about how we think it looks in real life but it's going to be it's still going to be up to that individual farmer in some cases to really figure out how to apply it to their farm and i you know i do a lot of work with retail um, food service. And uh, over the last year and a half, I've had the opportunity to sit on the statewide variance committee. So there's lots of really smart food people in the state that want to make really, really great stuff, whether it be they want to make barbecue and then hold it for 30 days in a vacuum seal in their, um, in their cooler, or they want to make fermented foods, whatever it is. And and we can point to, you know, what, what we ask them to do is say, okay, tell us what you're going to do. Come up with, with a HACCP plan. So show us what the hazards are, how you're going to ma- manage those hazards. And they give us some sort of scientific base on, on how you justified it. And in, in most cases, um, and we're, like literally we're asking restaurant like chefs to do that. And that's a that's a push, right? Like that's they they, they we're, we're asking them to be sci- to be scientists, and, and so they need some help. But once you kind of it, it explain what it is, they can they can start looking at it, and then you go into the literature and, and, and the stuff that we're that we're all producing and to look for 
justification for some of these things. And it's there, but it's not exactly what they're doing, right? Like, and I think that's what we're going to see with, with farmers, or that's what we are already seeing, is that, that there's some, you know, some sense of, okay, this, this factor increases risk. And if we do X, we're going we're gonna to impact that positively or negatively. So do X. But how much of X you do, um, that's going to be up to you on your farm. And you're going to have to make some, um, some decisions. And you're going to have to make some of those decisions based on science. Like we're, we're basically training those farmers to, to identify hazards and make risk management decisions, which we've never we've, – we, they, they've done for a long, long time when it comes to yield. And, and many of them have done it when it comes to food safety, but but probably not to this level where where we're we want them to be making decisions based on their own data, um, right? Which is you know which is where we need to be, but that's the that that that's going to continue to become a barrier, I think. Um, yeah. As we go forward, I mean, and the process begun um, last year. There was a paper published in um, Journal of Food Protection. The first author is Linda Harris. Um, there was. Actually, two papers, you know, and then both we refer to as what we call framework documents. Right. You know, one on irrigation water and one on um, UTSA, untreated soil amendments. Yeah, um, nice. Which, yeah, another. Uh, the UTSAs. <laughs> uh, so I think, and, you know, those documents try to bring together a lot of different things on how you would design experiments to assess some of these risks and, you know, apply for. Um, variances and things like that, um, how you'd go about doing it. I think that, you know, that was a really, really important step. It's something that, in my opinion, may not be fully appreciated until, like, the final, final produce rule comes out with FDA. But, I I mean, I think those are the kind of research projects that are going to be more meaningful. And I think, and I I do think you've seen that in some some of the stuff we were talking about earlier um, uh, even in, you know, you, there's this tendency now, which I think is good to have these big collaborative research projects and sort of, you know, try and integrate more of the findings. And I think, I think all of those are good developments. Um, so, you know, the other thing, just coming back to produce for a second, you know, we want people to eat safe food, obviously, but we, we still want people to eat more produce. We know that we have larger issues in this country related to um, obesity and you know other health risks by having a you know an unbalanced diet, and so we really do want people to to have the opportunity to eat safe produce. Um, and you know I, I I think about that a lot, uh, especially I mean there's a whole another issue right of food availability and food deserts and in certain environments where people don't have access to food and things like that. That's a whole nother issue. But, you know, you want people to have confidence in the, in, in, in the produce commodities that they're eating. And, um, I really think, you know, we, we should eat more, more produce in this country and we can obviously grow it. Yeah. Um, and we can know. do it. We, you know, the, I think the, the philosophy, um, or the, the mantra you mentioned before that, you know, we want, you know, pe- people shouldn't get sick from food. <laughs> you know, as so you know, as simple as that. And that you know, the other thing I'd add to that is we even some of the risky foods that we that we identify, you can make them less risky. I mean, like there's there there's no. It, it may take resources. It may take um, a whole bunch of 
focus, but it's it's possible to do this stuff in a way where we're we're we're, we're lessening the likelihood that someone's going to get sick. Um, it's not a you know I think some of our colleagues um, you know, I've, I've seen the attitude of well you know organic organically produced food is is much is 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 less safe just automatically well it's, to me it's not it's not just automatically less safe and, and in fact that that organic producer could do something different to make it safer it's not the sort of black and white situation um i've seen the same thing with when it comes to school and community gardens we've worked on projects over the last couple of years on that that you know if, if someone's not there and it's not a commercial production that it's not as safe as something that is well it's not it's not as simple as that. You can do these things in a in a safe way, or a mm-hmm. s- safe as possible way, or r- risk reduction, whatever it is. Yeah. You know, you're not going to have a zero risk situation, but um, but it's all doable. That's the that's that's where I start at uh, looking at it, right? Right. Um, no, that's a good point. And you, you mentioned that the you mentioned you said people shouldn't get sick from from food, which I I obviously agree with. But you know what else people shouldn't get sick from doing? What? <laughs> is 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 wiping wiping their hands on kitchen towels. <laughs> you, you like how I did that? Holy that is just, you almost were a radio DJ with that with that Se- kind of segue. Segway, ladies and gentlemen. Wow. <sighs> well done. Um and so yeah, I I was reading that article in Food Protection Trends, um, in the latest issue of Food Protection Trends. It's an article written by um, Chuck Gerba from University of Arizona about the presence of bacteria on, on kitchen towels. And they break it down. Uh, they collected kitchen towels, for, you know, from different regions of the of, of the United States and analyzed them for, I think, total heterotrophs, coliforms, and, and E. coli. And they found, you know. Uh, a decent amount of E. coli on some of these kitchen towels. I and I got to say, I've sort of, I've kind of, I've kind of come full circle on some of these um, household kitchen studies because I thought for sure if you look for bacteria, you know, in sponges or on towels or in things that people have in their household kitchen, I think you're going to find them. Right. Uh, right. Um, but lately. This is going to be so twisted. I mean, people are definitely going to have to have, you know, people are going to have to bear with us to, or bear with me to follow the train of thought here. But, um, you know, I, I, like I said, you know, I think you can find a lot of different bacteria. But, you know, I was looking at some of the E. coli specific results that they found. And you think, you know, they just look for E. coli. And you automatically assume that when they're looking for E. coli like that, and they're not characterizing it, that, that, that all these E. coli are non-pathogenic. That's that's my assumption. I don't think that's a correct assumption, it, yeah. obviously. But, like, when you just say, oh, they tested for E. coli, well, you know, they're not saying E. coli 0157H7. They're not saying S-TEC. They're not saying E-HEC, you know, or, you know, so they're not characterizing in the paper. And, you know, and rightfully so, they didn't test specifically for those things. But you just think, oh well, you know, they don't say it, so I'm just assuming that these are just generic E. coli. They're they're harmless, and that's really not a good assumption. Because it may um, not be. It may not be. You know, yeah. and there may be there may be E. heck in that in that proportion of E. coli. You hope not, um, but there there may be, and it's probably a small percentage um, if if it's there. But 
one of the things that it very well could be is something called extra intestinal pathogenic E. coli. And extra intestinal pathogenic E. coli um, are E. coli infections that are non-gastrointestinal. Um, they don't have the same symptoms as as EHEC infections do or STEC infections. These are infections that can be like urinary tract infections or infections that are in, in neonates, so neonatal meningitis. Um, there's also avian pathogenic E. coli, which causes um, uh, infections in, in poultry and is a big uh, is a big economic issue in, um, in poultry. And people wonder how these types of um, infections are, are transmitted to humans. And one of the one of the things is that they may be transmitted through food. So instead of food being an infectious agent, hey Ben, I got some maintenance guys knocking on my door for a second. Awesome. So I'm gonna I'm gonna see what they want real All quick. Right. Yeah, yeah. And good. I'll I'll come back. Yeah, no problem. Hey. Hey, how are y'all doing? You guys need something? Doctor Sharman? Yeah. Are you did you call in a ticket on the freezers outside? On the freezers? Yes, sir. Like a year ago, maybe. Oh. <laughs> can you go talk? I'm actually on, on this conference call right now. Okay. I can come down and talk to you on a little bit. Can you talk to Cheryl Roberts, who's downstairs? Cheryl Roberts? Yes, please. All right. Thank you. Hey, hey, Ben. That was Sorry awesome. About that. Sorry right. about that. Uh, it's good to uh, see the freezers getting fixed from a year ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure what's going on there. Um, I'm going to follow up. Um, so what were we talking about before we were talking about freezers? Uh, uh, we're talking about uh, our... Uh, the, uh, uh, so so expect infections, yes. right? Uh, okay, so so food can be a vehicle, Um we think that food sometimes gets people sick, and these symptoms are acute, and obviously that's what we're worried about. But there have been a couple of studies done where it's shown that these XPEC strains can be on the food that we eat, on cantaloupes and on chickens. Um, Consumer Report just did a huge study last December on antibiotic-resistant E. coli that was present on, on chickens. Um, and what... The theory is is that these bacteria are introduced to the body through food, um, and they sort of hang out in your gut um, for a while because that's where they're happy. Yep. And then, you know, somehow they get transferred to other tissues or organs in your body, and that's where they really cause their infection, like urinary tract infections caused by uropathogenic E. coli. And... One of the things that's been going on with uropathogenic E. coli is that they've become increasingly antibiotic resistant. And, you know, the CDC had a really, really nice and comprehensive report last year that came out on antibiotic resistant bacteria. And there's a development of a single clone of E. coli. And, um, we might be losing um, some people here, but basically, you know, there's one clone of E. coli that's sort of taking over. It has a specific sequence type, sequence type 131. And this is resistant to a lot of different antibiotics. And this is the this 131 is the one that is most commonly associated with the urinary tract infections. Right, right now it's the most common antibiotic resistant um, isolate that's um, being isolated from urinary tract okay, from, from patients with from patients gotcha. with urinary tract infections. Well, you're 
antibiotic resistance E. coli. There's other bacteria that do cause urinary tract infections, you know, as well. So, so is the stuff that that you're that you're looking at that you're you know working on right now is looking for that specific isolate in foods. Like I think, yeah, and it, um, I think this and this kind of goes back to produce safety and environmental microbiology in a way because what we're thinking is that E. coli and, you know, E. coli as an indicator is something that's been discussed, you know, and people really like it as an indicator. People really hate it as an indicator because they don't know what it's being used as an indicator for. Is it an indicator for fecal contamination or for the presence of pathogens? You know, and our friend Michelle Danilock is, you know, really an expert on this stuff. And, you know, she can she can explain it much better than I can. But, you know, but we are going to be using E. coli as an indicator for some of the for some produce safety stuff. And we're pulling going to be pulling out a lot of E. coli from from the environment and we're going to have these isolates. And we thought, well, since we're doing that, um, what if we test some of these E. coli isolates we're getting? They're not coming back positive for STEC or EHEC, but maybe they're positive for these XPEC virulence factors huh. um, or, or APEC virulence factors. And so, yeah, we've done some work testing E. coli isolates from soil amendments for, for some of these XPEC virulence factors and for some very specific antibiotic resistance genes. And... You know, it just is leading to the point where we're saying, you know, maybe this is an, an acute food safety risk. Like, you know, the way that those infections work, they're not going to cause immediate symptoms. Right. You're, right. But maybe this is, you know, something, this is just a way of introducing these bacteria into your body. And, and so when I, when yeah. I read Dr. Gerba's paper in Food Protection Trends and he found these E. coli on the kitchen towels, um, I was like, Wow. I wonder if any of these cause any of these urinary tract infection or these XPEC E. coli on these kitchen towels. And is that one way that they, is that just another reservoir of these E. coli, hmm. you know, in a, in a food production environment? Right, um, right. Your and household kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. And is it, um, just, yeah, exactly. Like, is it, is it a place where it may be, um, housing these potential pathogens and then being transferred around to food right. or, or to the urethra. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if it's exactly the urethra. <laughs> I have to go back and check on the I just, exact route of infection. I just but want yeah, to you, let you know that that's the first time that we've said urethra on um, on Food Safety Talk. So it's kind of... Yeah, so, um, I'm a, I'm, I feel like such a trailblazer. Yeah, you are. You, for, in more ways than one. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, um, but yeah, so that's why, I mean, I think that's a really good paper that was published in Food Protection Trends and has, a, you know, has a nifty iPhone app now or, yeah. you know, for, for FPT. It's, it's really pretty cool. awesome. Yeah. So, um, but I think, I think it was just another layer to that, to that work. So um, I thought I'd take this time to, you know, share it with you. Oh, that's cool. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so moving on without a real good segue, um, you so you you are a diva guest that comes with demands like I need my own entrance music, but <laughs> but 
But the flip side of that is that you also uh, came up with some suggestions and, and adding something to uh, to the mix of food safety talk, something called five seconds, which you you've stolen from. Um, I think it is Scott Van Pelt in yeah the SVP and Rosillo show. Rosillo show, yeah, yeah. So so we're gonna do it. Okay. Because I got I've got questions. Do you have questions for me? Do we talk? I got, I, I, I got yeah I got questions for you. All right. So, so so just so so everyone knows how this works, we ask questions of each other, but neither of us know what the questions are. Right. Um, and you have five seconds to to answer. Is it five seconds to like? You have to, to like to to start your answer. Yeah, five, okay, se- good. F- five seconds to start your answer. Okay, good because I'm so. I, yeah I, I wasn't uh, I wasn't fully yeah clear I don't on. I don't know be very the... quick. Right, right. Um, so all right, so so since it's my show, I get to go first. Absolutely. Um, now I'm going to tell you that this question I've kind of stolen this because I asked actually asked Don this question okay. in the, in the last podcast that I recorded um, uh-huh. with him, and it was because it was posed to me from a journalist but you haven't had the benefit of hearing okay. that because it hasn't been that uh, episode hasn't been posted yet so okay okay here's the question what is the riskiest food you eat regularly sushi nice all right and how did you make that uh, how did you make that call so what to- like, like how did you not why do you eat sushi but how did you make that very quick risk calculation in your head what were the uh, things that went into that that made you say that's the riskiest thing I eat? I was trying to think of all the things I eat that are minimally processed or not that don't go through some kind of kill step. So I think sushi might be one of those things. Um, sushi? Would you, you say sushi is more risky than like leafy greens? Cut leafy greens? Uh, not. You know, and I'm totally like you know playing playing with this. <laughs> I you know I. I'm not sure because as soon as I said sushi, I thought leafy greens. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I guess maybe it's you know I, I know what people are doing to leafy greens now you yeah. know and and I don't really know that much about sushi. I'm probably going to a bunch of people telling me how ignorant I am about it now. Um, it's okay. You know so, about blowing meat up. You know about right, seriously. Yeah. I I know the third string quarterback on Florida's football team. <laughs> does that count for something? It's kind of, um, it does. It does. Just not here. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, so I, how I answered that one was cilantro. Oh yeah. Because I eat a ton of cilantro, and huh? that old MDP program would say that uh, um, cilantro and salmonella are are, are best. Oh yeah, friends. all over those. Yeah. 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 Cool. Um, all right. All right. My turn to ask Your you turn. one. Go. Okay. What is the one thing that you told yourself as a graduate student that you would never do as a faculty member that you now do? Oh, man. Um, tick, 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 tick. Ask about uh, – uh, 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 man, I don't know. That's you're, You killed me here. Um, okay. No, let me, let me, give, me, give, me give me another okay. five seconds on this. Okay. I'll just sing. My favorite line in Driver 8 is she is selling faith on a go tail crusade. That was hopefully five seconds worth of filler. Excellent. Good job. Um, I think that I uh, w- w- told myself that I would get feedback to people a lot quicker than I do. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah. yeah. Like, because I, I, you know, as a, as a student, you always wanted to, like, you, you put something out there and, and you want right. to know right away. And, uh-huh. and as a faculty member, I've come to realize that I'm not 
very quick to do it right, and there's lots right. of stuff to do. So, and mm-hmm. then, and it's I constantly try to get better at that. Okay, it's good. That's a good question. Cool. You're gonna stump me yeah. on all these. All right. No, um, next one. Next one's much easier. All right, here you so. go. Uh, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, or Soundgarden? Ooh, Pearl Jam. Oh, good. Nice. Good, good. Nice. Excellent. Um, what is the best work-related trip based on location or hotel or food or company that you have taken since you started at NC State? Oh, since I started at NC State. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to go really recent on this. Uh, la- literally, last week I was in Austin, Texas. And nice. I, yeah, I had never been to Austin before. Mm-hmm. Um, Danny, my wife, got to come uh, with me, so that was the, the company was was good. Um, I gave a talk to about four hundred um, uh, environmental health specialists, public health inspectors in Texas, and it was great. The talk was great. The um, the conversations with them were great. But it was a really cool. I, it was a, it's a fantastic city. I'd go back there for a vacation. Um, yeah, Austin's great. Oh, so Austin's cool. Awesome. Really, Austin's really good. awesome. Cool. Lo- loved it there, and yeah, it was good. Good time. And actually, weird little thing. I uh, one of my friends from grade school who I had not seen in twenty years lives in Austin, and I got to hang out with him. And he, nice. Uh, yeah, so it was it was really cool. It was like this very reflective trip. Double bonus. All right, best project idea you wish you worked on. So oh my! Someone else did it, but you wish you did it, and it was awesome. Oh. um... That's a really good question. Wow. Ooh. Driver, hey. I might, I might need, I might need more than five seconds. All right, you can, to, take, you can take some. Time. Uh, That's a big one. Um, it's, you know, I really liked this one paper from two thousand and six. Um. Uh, Rebecca Rashid was the main author on it. I can't remember what it was in an ASM journal. Um, and what she did was she uh, looked at all the virulence factors, or not all, but several of the virulence factors of um, E. coli O157H7 and showed which ones were uh, expressed more highly um, when they were attaching to the, the, the rectum of a cow. Excellent. <laughs> Um, and I thought, man, that was a really cool idea and a cool piece of work. Um, and I always wish I'd come up with something like that. Oh, we actually, it was so cool. Like, you know, was imitation is the best form of flattery. Is exactly. The right. So, yeah. yeah, we, we tried to do it with leafy greens, you know, like we, we took that idea and did it, tried to do it with leafy greens. And, um, but yeah, that was an awesome piece of work. I really enjoyed that. I thought that was so creative scientifically. Awesome. I, so I, of course, thought about my answers for this. And for this one, um, there is a really, really good paper that um, that Kathy Cutter uh, led um, on um, comparing uh, poultry products at farmer's markets and in grocery stores. And it was uh, Josh Scheinberg, one of her grad students. Oh, yeah, yeah. Josh is a good guy. Yeah. And it was yeah. – like literally one of the I, I use it all the time as a as an example of just the cleanest setup of a of a project and it's really applied and it's really good and the conclusions are fantastic. I wish I had done that. She it was uh, awesome. It was good. It's good stuff. Cool. Um oh yeah, my turn. You go. Go. Okay. Um so after you after you got 
uh, a professional interest in food safety. What was the one aspect of your home kitchen that you paid more attention to? Uh, thermometer. I got, and oh. I now have like a million of them, but I um, almost immediately started thinking, and I don't know, like I can't point back to exactly when it was. It was definitely when I was in graduate school, and Pete Snyder sent me um, a Comark PDT 300, which is still my thermometer of choice. Uh-huh. Um, and it was after something that I wrote on, on Barf Blog um, mm. about thermometer use. And, and as soon as I got that, I was like, you know, I'm going to use it for everything. And then literally last night, I microwaved some chicken nuggets for my kids, and I tempt each individual nugget. Um, with my Comark PD3. I've, I've probably been through four or five of them now because I've melted one by leaving it on the barbecue too long and I ended up <laughs> washing it. Like, I've, I've gone through a bunch. But it is that that tool is I use it daily, and I did not do it. I don't remember my parents ever having one when I was growing up. I don't, right. Yeah, it, that that absolutely is one that, that is uh, day, every, every day I use it. Cool. Good answer. What... Is your the the most important sports moment in your life? Oh, <laughs> so it's obviously going to be something to do with the University of Florida. Uh, maybe. Uh, maybe uh, uh, I think it was. Uh, I'm actually not going to go football in this one. I'm going to go basketball. 1994, when Florida made the Final Four of the NCAA basketball tournament, um, they were. I, a three seed. Um, they had just an awesome team that worked really, really hard. They beat uh, Boston College in the in the Elite Eight game to go to the Final Four. And this guy named Craig Brown, who was a awesome three point shooter, he had the record for most three pointers made at Florida for a long time. He came down and on three successive trips, he hit three straight three pointers that basically salted the game away. Um, and that put Florida into the Final Four. The next week, they played Duke in the first Final Four game. They were up 11 <laughs> at the half, uh, at the half, and and lost that game. It was Grant Grant Hill's senior year at Duke, and Duke was a pretty good team. And uh, I mean, Florida didn't have nearly as much talent as Duke that year, but that's probably my uh, my favorite sports awesome. moment. What's yours? Um. So I don't know. It's not a favorite, but it's the one that is that has stung me the most. Um, I uh, the 2012-13 NHL playoffs game seven of the first round. Toronto was playing Boston. They were up four to one with uh, I think it was like eleven minutes to go, um, and yeah. they ended up losing the the game in overtime. And I, I remember. Oh, yeah. I crushed, like still to this day. It took me. Uh, I mean, it's not a long time, but that was the the te- the the first bit of hope that we had had for the for this team in ten years. They hadn't made the playoffs, and then they pushed Boston, who ended up going to the uh, to the finals, um, to you know to seven games. And um, gosh, it was uh, it, like all last year. All you know, that I, I still can't get over it. So <laughs> it's still today is the most important one. Wow. Yeah, I know. Oh, it's a, it's a negative one. How, how about yeah. that? Well, so the next two questions I have are not necessarily specifically food Sorry. related, but they are microbiology related. All right. Okay. 
where is the one place you've had to change a diaper for one of your kids that you absolutely did not want to because you were like, ew. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's, a, that's a good one. Um, I had to change uh, a diaper that was leaking, like one that had exploded uh, in the car um, because we were on our way from um, from Raleigh to uh, to Canada on a trip home, and um, and we had stopped at a parking lot, and it was raining, and it was late, and we couldn't get into the gas station or anywhere else to do it. So I, I literally remember trying to spread paper down that we had, so the leaking um, part of, of the poop didn't get all over the car seat. Like the so it was it was bad. It wasn't I wasn't concerned about my kid getting dirty. It was that he was now going to contaminate the car, and we had another, <laughs> um, you know, seven hours of driving, and it was in somewhere in West Virginia. I remember that part. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's um, good. Uh, well, next time our house is always available. I think we're one of the routes. It's you know, sort from of Rale- yeah. Raleigh to um, to Canada. So, it's it's true. Know. We we do try to avoid the DC. Uh, the yeah, DC that's, area. No, that's that's smart. Definitely smart. So where's the worst? All right, I'll give you that one. Where's the worst? You you've uh, changed the diaper. I think I've been pretty fortunate. I you know I was trying to. I think it was probably on an airplane. Oh yeah, that's bad. Um, and it was actually an airplane that was, we were on the plane on the ground. It was delayed on the ground. It was one of those things where you have to stay on the plane and you can't get off. And, um, you know, I knew, I knew his diaper was dirty. (laughs) I had a, I had a period of denial. Um, but then I realized like, you know, it's probably, you got to, got to tough it out. So, uh, I, I think airports and airplanes for changing areas just, you know, so inherently. But I will say um, I had a very friendly um, air hostess, and she was uh, really helpful and understanding. She must have been a parent. So uh, she really helped out, Helped out. so I'm appreciative to her. And I will say it, uh, if you ever fly into uh, Reagan, you know, to DCA, uh, in D.C., they have family changing rooms that have uh, toilet seat covers now, which oh, is good. Nice. Good, good on your potty training. Excellent. I'm sure my son, when he, if he ever listens to this, when he's, you know, he's going to be like, "Why were you talking about this?" Oh, right, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah so. he'll. Our, our children are, are, will love yeah. everything we do for them. <laughs> right. Yeah. All so. Right, all right. So I got one more for you. Okay. Um, in your food safety career. Looking back, we've already talked about one, so it's off the board. Uh, um, but what what do you think is the most important outbreak to your career? And you can't use the spinach outbreak. <laughs> so sorry, because that's probably wow. it. Yeah, that, if you yeah, took that, that probably... off the board. What else? What else? Have we what, what else is the number number one number or one A? I think the uh, the 2011 cantaloupe outbreak. Mm. Um, well, you know, that was the first thing that came to mind because, you know, work on produce safety. Maybe overall it had to be the, uh, you know, the, 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 it was the 93, the 1993 uh, Jack in the Box, the E. coli 057H7 outbreak. You know, because that was really the one that, um, is that the right year? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that was the one that really put the pathogen really on the map, right? I mean, I don't, don't mean to be dismissive of it i mean it's obviously you know horrible 
pathogen. And if you ever have a chance to see Bill Marler, one of Bill Marler's talks on it, you know, he'll show you just gruesome slides, man. You can't, can't get, I can't get, I've seen him do it a couple of times. I can't get through that talk. I mean, I literally, I literally can't look at that anymore. It really gets to me. But, you know, for overall impact, uh, you know, on how we approach food safety um, and the attention we pay to certain pathogens, I mean, I, I think that one is probably the biggest one, um, you know, just for an OR, overall preventative approach to food safety. And, I mean, I know that, you know, have HACCP now and we're going to have uh, uh, preventative controls and things like that. I think the 2011 cantaloupe outbreak just specifically because we, you know, we do in produce safety and just the, uh, I think that's one that people are going to look back on and, and think, wow, and that was the same summer as the, as the sprout outbreak in Germany. That's right. You know, the E. coli 0104H4 outbreak. And, you know, I just couldn't imagine I, the literal, the, the, you know, the mortality um, in both of those outbreaks was just shocking to, to me. You know, uh, I'm still astounded that, you know, 35 people died from the listeria cantaloupe outbreak. I just, yeah. it just, it's, it, it's I, I, I sort of, I mean, I, I mean, I understand why, but it's still just kind of, it still shocks me to think about. So so I guess one and one and one A I guess right now. Good. Um, but so um, mine's much less serious uh, than that. Uh, my last real question to you is: um, How cool is Christine Brune? <laughs> um, on a Likert scale, uh, how do you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She's, sure. Whichever she, scale you choose. Yeah, she's she's very she's very cool. She um, she she just retired. Um, I think officially in like. May maybe, but we've been working together on this um, E. coli STEC project right. uh, in beef for the last few years, and I, I've known Christine for a long time, but but I'd never had a chance to work with her, and she's been really great um, uh, to work with. And uh, I my my favorite Christine Brune story is um, I went to she invited me to speak at an IFT meeting in um, in New Orleans. Um, back in i think it was 2007 and um or no it would have been 2000 summer 2008 we hadn't moved to north carolina but danny my danny was pregnant with with jack and um and danny came with me and uh we had this like reception christine and john were there and we got you know we talked for a while and then um i don't know if i like i think i posted about jack being born on barf blog or something and literally Three weeks later, I got a package from Christine Brune with um, some hats and or not hats with bibs that she had made uh, oh, for wow. Jack. Yeah, like and and she was. I mean, she's. It's not like we're. I, I knew her really, really well, but it was that was just so kind and so nice and thoughtful. Like to see that and be like, here you go. This is. You know, I've been thinking about you. Well, that's um, awesome. So that makes her really super cool in my mind. Awesome. Yeah. Very, very neat. Um. Cool. Well, hey. I think, you know, we've been, I, I told you when we were uh, either talking yesterday or, or texting mm-hmm. the, or emailing, like, yeah, we'll talk for like half an hour, 45 minutes. And and it's, uh, we're, we're like almost an hour and a half now, which, uh, yeah. uh, with, uh, except for the uh, interlude of the freezers. 
<laughs> Which, <laughs> Which, <laughs> I have to go check on right now. Right, right, good. Yeah, but hopefully yeah. your freezers are working. Um, yeah. But uh, but I think we'll call the show. Um, okay. Can I give can I give a shout out to somebody real quick? To whoever you want. Yeah. You... Uh, I want to give a shout out to the who we refer to as the subunit here in our lab because they have been awesome to work with. They're great, and um, they were actually all out this morning sampling. I was with them, and they're processing the samples right now while I'm up here talking to you. So they are excellent microbiologists. I hope they all have long careers in 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 the field of food safety. Well, so. way to go, subunit. Yeah. Um, I um, yeah. You shut. You can totally shut up. You're gonna come back on some other time. I'm gonna next next time. Don leaves me. You're oh. uh, you're you're back on. We'll talk about other stuff. Cool, man. I I, I appreciate the, I appreciate the chance, man. Thanks, Ben. I, oh, hey, thank <laughs> you. Appreciate it. It's, sometimes it's just not nice to talk to somebody else. Not that I'm getting <laughs> bored of Don, but. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, it was good. It was great to have you on, and uh, yeah, thanks, thanks again for for your time. And and you know what? Actually, before we go, I want to I want to tell you. I mean, you you probably know, but you might not remember this. But I, um, you know, I I I, I spent a lot of time talking about um, the influence of IAFP in in that group on where I am and why, you know, why I do what I do. And I, I do, I mean, you're, you're a really big part of that. And for one kind of massive reason. So back when I first met you in 2002, I think it was, and you were, you were the chair of the student professional development group. Um, I wrote, I rem- like, I, I remember emailing you like, literally I know exactly where I was. I was st- in Kansas on a trip um, with Doug and I remember emailing you about, Hey, do you want somebody to write something for the PDG newsletter? I don't, I don't know. I don't have a copy. I don't know what I wrote, but I do remember you being like, we, uh, you and I exchanging emails are like, yeah, that'd be great. And, and then I sent you a copy and you're like, this is fantastic. And it was, it gave me this, like, like I didn't know anybody and I didn't know anything about what was going on. I was in my own little insular spot in, in Guelph, but it gave me this like, oh man, whatever. Someone, someone wants content from me, mainly because you probably just wanted to fill pages, which I'm happy to do that. <laughs> um, but uh, but I always, you know, kind of do think yeah. back on that a lot. So I, you know, you've, you've always been good, a good friend, and and, and you you can te- you can take um, solace in the fact that 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 was my that was my break, that was my big start. <laughs> Some, somehow i somehow i think you would have had a successful career without your uh contribution to the the student uh pdg newsletter i don't know but, i don't know but uh, i was probably very very grateful at the time that we had someone who was willing to write something and we had content so so thank you for doing that one of the questions i wrote down that i didn't ask was when and where did you and i first meet i, I, I think that was it I mean, and I, and I have to admit, I couldn't remember, <laughs> so and because I feel like I've known you my whole sort of graduate school career, and, and I know I'm older than you, <laughs> but um, I, I was like, man, I've known Ben Chapman forever. It, yeah, like, so when when did we meet? Two thousand and two, man. Two thousand two. I'm glad. I'm glad you had that that info. Uh, yeah, was, it was top yeah, of mind. Cool, man. Well, good. Well, well, there I answered a question that uh, you didn't even ask. I know. You didn't even need five <laughs> seconds. So. Awesome. <laughs> so. Well, cool. All right. All right. Well, hey, thanks again. And, Thank you. Uh, and I'll talk to you soon. Sounds good, Ben. All right, man. We'll take, talk to you take, later. Take care, man. Bye-bye. Bye.